the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Bells will be ringing. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. <clears throat> Dave is taking a few days well-deserved off during this holiday period. I hope everyone had a Merry Christmas and is looking forward to the new year. Indeed, I will be hosting today uh, as well as Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, I don't know offhand. Maybe Heidi, you know, do you know, is is Dave coming in on Tuesday and Friday or does he have other coverage? Let's see. Uh, He'll be here on Tuesday and then uh, Friday we have off because that is New Year's Day. Oh, gee. Shows you how much I'm paying attention. Terrific. (laughs) Well, uh, we look forward to hearing Dave tomorrow. And uh, Heidi, as she always does when I'm on the show, uh, will be calling our break. So you'll hear her uh, throughout the show helping me out. Uh, I've got uh, enough to handle just keeping the disparate thoughts in my head straight. So I appreciate your, your help as always, Heidi. In any event, as always, we have a lot to talk about this morning. Uh, I get so much fodder from reading that opinion journal known as the New York Times. I can no longer call it a newspaper, right? It's just not uh, the case uh, any longer that it is indeed a newspaper. But when you read that uh, opinion journal, it, it certainly provides you with a lot of fodder to respond to. And so we, we'll do that this morning. Chris Corbett, uh, our good friend, attorney, professional engineer, uh, lives up in the Conway area, practices uh, throughout Arkansas, will be joining us later this morning. And also for the recorded uh, section of this show, which airs, as you likely know, during the uh, 6 to 7 p.m. hour. So please stay tuned for that or tune back in if you take a, a respite. Uh, to hear the rest of uh, the show. Where to start, where to start is always the big conundrum. So uh, I figure we'll just dive in in the middle and uh, work our way out uh, in no particular direction. One of the topics that has interested me for a long time is the concept of the pardon, the executive pardon power. Uh, And so, as you know, Uh, President Trump has issued a number of pardons recently, and I would like to start by reading parts of a New York Times article dealing with pardons. But before I do that, so I've already misled you slightly uh, in saying that I want to start with the article. I want to tell you about thoughts I've had on the pardon power for years. I've written some things about this. I can't remember, frankly, if I've published anything or not. Years ago, I was contacted by someone who had some affiliation with some celebrity who was looking for a pardon for a crime he had committed as a juvenile. And 
they wanted me to write a piece regarding that celebrity uh, to perhaps help him get a pardon. I believe at the state level, whatever state it was. And I said, well, look, I've got uh, sort of a, a checklist of items that must be met for me to believe that a person warrants a pardon. Now, that's just my list. I'm not an executive. I don't hold any such authority. But that's the that's my approach. And that's, as I said, the the idea that I express when I write about pardons or the ideas, I should say. And so the the person who had contact me, who's in sort of a, a legal field, he connects lawyers and academics with people in need of some sort of representation, essentially. Put me in touch with some representative of this celebrity. And I said, well, okay, here's the deal. Uh, I think that for someone to have a pardon, uh, they should either demonstrate innocence, uh, because one of the uses of the pardon power is to correct overzealous prosecution. I don't think it's an endemic problem, but I think it occurs. Uh, in fact, I know that it occurs. Uh, and I've spoken to prosecutors who confirm that it occurs. Or when a person committed a wrong a, a long time ago, admits the wrong, make amend, makes amends for the wrong, apologizes <clears throat> to the victim or victims of the wrong, uh, and has demonstrated that he or she is pursuing a good path, that is a an opportunity for an individual to get a pardon, subject, of course, to the sound discretion and evaluation by the executive. The celebrity that I uh, was asked to write this article about fall, fell into the latter category. So I said, well, do you know if this, to his representative, do you know if this Celebrity uh, apologized, made amends, etc. As I just described, part of my checklist for granting a pardon. And this representative said, well, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure uh, he, he's done that. I'll have to get back to you. And they never got back to me. So that was it. That was fine. The answer likely was no. And years later... I also told this representative that this celebrity who was looking to have um, uh, get some other legal recourse, which was related to but independent from the pardon, uh, I had seen the, the submission that he had given uh, regarding that other relief as well as the pardon relief uh, to the state. And I told this representative, I don't know who's representing the celebrity as a lawyer, but I didn't think it was a very well done application. So the representative said, well, you know, I can't really address that and I can't relay that because I'm friends with the lawyer as well as a celebrity. And this is the difficulty when you have all of these people surrounding you screening information. This is the problem with the bureaucracy. I said, look, that's outside my sphere, I'm just telling you, it was not a very good pardon application, 
as well as a not a very good application for this other relief that the individual was seeking. Years later, I saw an article, an interview with this celebrity, and he repeated almost verbatim what I had told this representative, but didn't. the celebrity had not pursued what I had said years prior, meaning he said, oh, well, my application wasn't very good, and I hadn't apologized at the time, and I should have, so now I'm doing all of those things correctly. So maybe my sound advice filtered forward to that celebrity, or maybe somebody else came up with it. I'm certainly not alone in being able to reasonably evaluate legal issues. So fast forward, we see the president issuing, of course, a number of pardons, and presidents over the years have been subject to criticism from time to time when they issued pardons. And so this president should not be immune from legitimate criticism. But let's take a look at the criticism he did receive and see if it falls in line with the criticism that other presidents have received and not received for the pardons that they have issued. In other words, has the press been consistent? Has the press been fair with this president when compared to past presidents? I suspect you know the answer already to that broad question. Let's delve in a little bit more deeply. I have an article from the New York Times. Indeed, it's characterized as news analysis. We've talked about this before on the Dave Ellswick Show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. News analysis is a fancy way of saying opinion piece. And, of course, newspapers are perfectly entitled to publish editorials. Generally, the editorials are not written by the reporters because we like to believe in a separation between reporting the news and opinion. But, of course, that distinction has melted away like an ice cube on a hot frying pan at the New York Times and at various other venues. Peter Baker, who fancies himself a news reporter, writes this opinion piece. And before I get into it, finally, perhaps, hopefully, you might be thinking, news analysis or opinion pieces have tended to be opinions about news, opinions about politics. So the opinion writers for the New York Times, for any newspaper, Indeed, write opinions about, well, this president should have done this. This elected official should have done that. Okay. Perhaps it's fair to say that those involved in the news business, albeit we should have a separation that I just articulated between reporters and opinion pieces, but those involved in the broader enterprise of publishing newspapers – tend to be better informed or well-informed, the latter perhaps a stretch, about politics because that is a significant portion uh, of which, uh, on which they report. So no doubt they have opinions and perhaps somewhat informed ones at that. But as you'll see in a moment as I delve into this piece, this is not an opinion piece about politics. It's an opinion piece about psychology. 
the psychology of analyzing the president, the president's mind, that is. Now, does Peter Baker have any expertise in issues psychological? I don't think so. It doesn't say after his name that he's got a master's in social work or a Ph.D. in psychology. Yet, as you'll see, this is really a screed on the psychological competence of the president. This is the kind of stuff that you hear at a Starbucks, at uh, amongst your friends, meaning we're all free to come up with our wacky theories of psychology. Nobody restricts us on that. But should that be published and published no less on what was once a legitimate n- news sources paper or now, of course, in these days, website? I suspect you know what I think is the right answer to that question. So here's what Uh, Here's how the, I dare say, with quotes, article goes. Uh, The statement announcing the latest raft of presidential pardons was officially attributed to the White House press secretary, but it bristled with President Trump's own deep-seated grievances. That's the opening sentence, folks. Now, Robert, let's continue this article after we get uh, done with our commercial break coming up. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave is taking off some time for the Christmas break. Robert Steinbach is a law professor over at the UA Little Rock Bowen School of Law. His opinions are his and his alone and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of UA Little Rock. We will be right back. We have to get to some traffic and your news coming up on the Dave Ellswick Show. One. 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave this Monday morning. As I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, if you hadn't tuned in then, I'll be covering for Dave today and Wednesday and Thursday. Dave will be in tomorrow, so make sure to tune in uh, to listen to him directly on 101.1 FM, The Answer. And Friday is New Year's Day, so there will be a best of We have been talking about this New York Times air quotes article dealing with pardons. I described in the previous segment some of my thinking on pardons. It's a legal matter and something I've thought about for many, many years. And I'm talking about this Peter Baker piece in the New York Times that really is a screed in which Peter Baker decides he's a psychologist and he's going to share his non-expert opinion, needless to say, on President Trump's mental capacity. It's really remarkable how the press has gone off the rails, folks, off the rails when it comes to their freedom, they believe, to just opine on the president's mental capacities. Now, mind you, Not a word, not a lick about how clearly Joe Biden has some diminished capacity. It's transparent. Honest liberals who are friends of mine have said to me, oh, yeah, I voted for for Joe Biden. And I recognize that his mental capacity is diminished. I still prefer him over Trump. Fine. Fine. 
you're allowed to make that judgment. But don't tell me, as some do, or as the press has hidden, that there's no issue there regarding Joe Biden's mental capacities. But you see, there's no opinion and no reporting about Joe Biden's mental capacities. But here, Peter Baker doesn't comment even on President Trump's mental capacities, but on his psychological state. Because, folks, of course, we all know Peter Baker of New York Times, he's an expert on these things. Wait, what? He's not? Wait, he's not a psychologist? He's not a therapist? You mean he just makes this up? This is coffee clutch stuff? This is his back-of-the-envelope analysis that makes the print of the New York Times? Well, I'm afraid so, folks. So as I read before the break, here's the first thing that Peter Baker writes. The statement announcing the latest raft of presidential pardons was officially attributed to the White House press secretary. But it bristled, bristled, folks, with President Trump's own deep-seated grievances. For, you know, one sentence, one sentence in, and we've got to unpack this thing already. First of all, it was attributed to the White House press secretary, but it bristled with President Trump's own deep-seated grievances. Suggesting that, well, maybe the White House press press secretary didn't write it. The president did. Um, Do you know how press secretaries are supposed to operate, Mr. Baker? A press secretary is supposed to reflect the statements, the ideas, and the policies of the president. The more the press secretary's statement sounds like what the president would say, the more the press secretary is doing her job. So there's no critique that the press secretary's comments reflect those of the president. That's a compliment because that's the press secretary's job. But of course, Peter Baker writes in a way, well, it it seems like even though it was issued by the press secretary, it really came from the president. Folks, there's supposed to be almost no separation between what the press secretary says and what the president says. And I say almost no, only because to the extent that the press secretary is relaying the president's comments, there might be some disconnect, meaning that's a negative, not a positive. So already, as we've heard so often when the press reports on the administration. Well, you know, the head of this agency or that agency seems to be reflecting the president's views, not the heads, the head of the agency's views. Excuse me. The head of an agency works for the president, is subject to the president's control. That's why all of these false notions, well, the attorney general, you say, is supposed to be an independent force. No, he's not. Mm, No, he's not. Well, you see, he's supposed to be a check on the president. No, he's not. Now, if the president asks the attorney general to do something illegal, should there be a check? Well, of course, there's some form of check. The attorney general shouldn't do anything illegal. So if the president or anybody else asks him to do something illegal, he should say no. And if the president, as the attorney general's superior, insists, then the attorney general should resign. 
All right, Robert, let's pause right there. We got to get to some news. So we'll be right back with Robert Steinbach. He is a UA Literoc professor at the Bowen School of Law. Um, He is filling in for Dave. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am, as you perhaps already know, Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave today, Monday. I'll be filling in again Wednesday and Thursday. Dave will be back tomorrow, and Friday will be a best of show because it's the new year. We are here on 101.1, let me say that again, 101.1 FM, The Answer, and we're talking about the biased New York Times. I've made it all the way through one sentence in a so-called news analysis piece, which is a psychological takedown by an unqualified reporter to make such comments, Peter Baker of the New York Times. I've analyzed so far the first half of the first sentence. We're now going to go in the second half Uh, And let me repeat yet again that sentence. The statement announcing the latest raft of presidential pardons was officially attributed to the White House press secretary, but it bristled, bristled, folks, with President Trump's own deep-seated grievances. So let's talk about the second half. First of all, there's this new notion, apparently, amongst the left, that the word grievance, that having a grievance is a bad thing. Now, Don't get me wrong. I wish I had no grievances. I wish the world was great and everybody treated everyone well and there were no problems. There is no war. But I have grievances. Now, note where you hear the term often grievance, white grievance. When someone who happens to be white has a complaint about something going on in society And the race baiters come out and decide that the color of his skin bears on the legitimacy of his grievance. The grievance may be legitimate. The grievance may be illegitimate. But why is the grievance based on the color of his skin? It almost invariably is not. I say almost invariably because maybe there's some racist who combines false complaints with racist ideas. But that's not what you hear and not what you see for the most part when you when you read the news or watch it. And they talk about this so-called made up generally notion of white grievance. It's a way to discredit the claims of some people who happen to be white who likely are conservative by injecting false claims of race, meaning racist claims against those happenstance individuals, meaning those people who happen to be white. President Trump's own deep-seated grievances, deep-seated grievances, says Peter Baker, deep-seated grievances. That sounds like psychobabble from someone not qualified to be making psychobabble comments, meaning psychology is legitimate, fair, and reasonable. Made-up psychology is not, and that's what this sounds like. Next sentence, his friend and longtime, or paragraph indeed, longtime advisor Roger Stone, by the way, who I'm no fan of, Uh, uh, the statement said, quote, was treated very unfairly by prosecutors. Is that not true? When 
The FBI did a pre-dawn televised raid of Roger Stone's house. Was that legitimate? Was Roger Stone really a threat that required folks with ARs, literally ARs, to show up at his house? I think that was a little bit overkill. Well, Rob, you know, you never know. You you go into a house, it's a dangerous situation, better safe than sorry. I agree with all of that. So what's my complaint? Folks who are not a danger to society, who are not a risk of fleeing, both of which aptly describe the 70-plus-year-old Roger Stone, he may be a bit of a kook, and I'm not a fan of some of his invective, but he, he wasn't going anywhere. So what do you do in that context? And I know this is done. I've got enough friends who were or are prosecutors to confirm this fact. Well, and Roger Stone had an attorney, has an attorney. The prosecutor gets in touch with Roger Stone's attorney and says, we're going to indict Roger Stone. So uh, we would like him to come in voluntarily. There's also an intermediate step. If you are afraid he's going to destroy evidence or run away. Also, by the way, likely, uh, um, highly unlikely in this circumstance, not because Roger Stone wouldn't destroy evidence, but because all of that had been sussed out well before. Well, then what do you do? You say, well, we'd like to invite Roger Stone to come down, and you don't tell him why. Now, he could say no, his attorney could say no, but the prosecutor could say, look, we may want to have a discussion with him. We may want to take him into custody. Uh, whatever the case may be, we're offering this opportunity. And most defense attorneys will take up that opportunity. So again, there was no reason to do what the FBI did. And it was, again, mysteriously televised by CNN. But everybody in the FBI said, nobody tipped us off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And nobody tipped off CNN, rather. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So, and CNN says that as well. So, was he treated unfairly? Yeah, he was treated unfairly. And then the amount of time that the prosecutors sought prior to Bill Barr correcting it was an inflated amount of time. Sorry. Um uh, I'll skip over. He says something about uh, what the president said about uh, uh, Paul Manafort. Uh, by the way, I'm no fan of Paul Manafort. And it seems clear that he committed crimes unrelated to his work for the president and his work during the transition, that type of thing, uh, that that he, he was some fraud and not insignificant, by the way. Next paragraph, and complaining about prosecutorial misconduct. By the way, they put that in quotes. Wait, what? (laughs) Why is that in quotes? Why is it not actually prosecutorial misconduct? In complaining about prosecutorial misconduct, though, Mr. Trump seemed to be talking as much about himself as his allies. Really? Really? Uh, You know that how, Mr. Baker? In the flurry of 49 partings and communications, excuse me, commutations, issued this week, President Trump granted clemency to a host of convicted liars, crooked politicians, and child-killing war criminals. Mm, Yeah, no hyperbole there, right? 
But the through line was a president who considers himself a victim of law enforcement and was using his power to strike back. Really? Really? That's not an appropriate psychological analysis from an unqualified news reporter? I think it is. Never mind, says the reporter, that Mr. Trump presents himself as a champion of law and order. Yes, folks, a champion of law and order recognizes that people should be prosecuted for wrongdoing and that from time to time there are wrongful prosecutions, the province of which are pardon power. So there's nothing inconsistent about a president who issues pardons and a president who is pro-law and order. By the way, law and order is also in quotes. There's no such thing as law and order because that's what strange strange quotes suggest, that it's a made-up concept. Or maybe he's just quoting the president without attribution. So the pardon power, abuse of authority, and law and order are all concepts that coexist consistently. And that's what Peter Baker seems to neglect and reject. The president has been at war with the criminal justice system, says Peter Baker, at least when it come, it has come to himself and his friends. Really? Really? Uh, by the way, remember that President Trump uh, commuted, or I think pardoned, a woman who was in jail for a drug crime that was the, the the punishment did not align with the crime. That was the the woman who's associated with uh, Kanye West and um, uh, Kim Kardashian. The president doesn't know her or didn't know her. That was a function of being made aware of this woman by Kim Kardashian and others, that she should be out. She should be let out of prison. And he did it. Was that for his own personal benefit? No. That was an apt exercise of the commutation power. So when they say, oh, it's all personal grievances. Uh, okay. Okay. Now, is it fair to say that more people that the president is aware of got commutations than not? Yeah. And if you look back in history, you'll see a disproportionate number of pardons and other commutations given to people with some connection to the president. That occurs all the time. It's an, the, the normal I'm, I'm struggling, needless to say, for the right word, but it's it's predictable, meaning, well, if the president has a commutation power in which he lets people who have been wronged off and he's aware personally of people who have been wronged from his own interactions, those are going to have an outsized uh, proportion relative to the rest of the world. We should try to shift that balance. I agree. But to suggest that somehow it's novel in the case of President Trump, more made-up news by leftist so-called reporters. Just made up. Uh, 
I'm sorry, I'm going to pick up. Uh, the article says, and so in these final days in office, President Trump is using the one all but absolute power vested in the presidency to rewrite the reality of his tenure. Wait, to what? To rewrite the reality of his tenure? That's not only uh, made up psychobabble, it's just factually untrue. He's not rewriting anything. These people have been convicted, and he's pardoning them. That's how the pardon power operates. It doesn't rewrite anything. To rewrite the reality, says Peter Baker, of his tenure by trying to discredit investigations into him and his compatriots and even absolving others he seems to identify with because of his own encounters with authorities. Of course, the latter of which is, again, sheer speculation to the point of absurdity. But even the statement where he says, while trying to discredit investigations into the president. No, he's not trying to discredit investigations into the president. He is taking discredited investigations and prosecutions that stemmed therefrom and adjusting them as he sees fit, given his authority as the president. All right, Robert, let's pick up that thought uh, after this break. We got to get to your traffic. So let's do that. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbach is a UA Little Rock law professor over at the Bowen School of Law. His opinions are his and his alone and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the staff or management of UA Little Rock. He is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave Ellswick is on his Christmas break right now. We'll be back after this. This is the Dave Ellswick Show 101.1. FM, The Answer. This is Robert Steinbeck. I'm filling in for Dave today, Wednesday and Thursday. Dave will be back tomorrow and on Friday here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Uh, It will be the best of because it's New Year's Day. Uh, If you have an inclination, uh, follow me on Twitter. uh, And my handle on Twitter is at Rob Steinbuck, S-T-E-I-N-B-U-C-H. So take a look there if you're interested. We're talking about this Peter Baker article in the New York Times. I use the term article generously, no doubt. And we've gotten all through three or so paragraphs because this piece is so filled with invective and armchair psychology by this so-called reporter, Peter Baker, that it's, it's virtually impenetrable, the article is. So uh, we were at the point where Peter Baker is saying that the president is trying to rewrite reality by trying to discredit investigations uh, that, uh, uh, into him. And, of course, the key investigation that we're talking about here is the Russia investigation, which came out in the end to show that there was no coordination conspiracy with Russians. The president doesn't need to discredit the investigation. The investigation itself discredited the claim that the president was in bed with the Russians. A bit ironic, by the way, when we see that Eric Swalwell, the congressman from California, was quite literally in bed with a Chinese spy. Literally. And he all the time and continues to this day to accuse the president of all sorts of wrongdoing and had accused him quite openly 
as did uh, um, uh, uh, the other congressman, uh, Schiff, who said, well, it's in plain sight. They would say, what's the evidence that the president conspired with the Russians? So instead of providing evidence, the response was, well, it's clear as day. It's in plain sight. Um, Okay, I guess my eyes are a little bit foggy. I need some glasses. Can you articulate it to me? Well, it's right there. It's It's looking at you in the face. Of course, you remember the old story about where the king had no clothing, but nobody would tell him that the tailor didn't actually give him any clothing. And so they would say, oh, the, the suit looks great. The suit looks terrific. And say, well, what suit? Well, the suit right there. It's right there. You can see it right there. It's the same thing. The emperor has no clothes when it came to the Russia investigation. The Russia investigation itself said there was nothing to the claim that the president and his men and women were conspiring with Russians. And chief among them were people like Congressman Eric Swalwell, who literally, biblically, was in bed with a Chinese spy. Folks, you can't make this stuff up. If you saw this on a television show, you'd say, well, you know, they take a little license to make the story interesting, but it's gotten to the point that it's not. You can't even follow it because you can't suspend your disbelief to that level. But this is what really happened. So uh, when he when Peter Baker says. The president is trying to discredit investigations. No, no, the investigations discredited the false claims about the president's wrongdoing. Let's get it right. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, skipping ahead because there's more uh, uh, irrelevancy in this article. Needless to say. Uh, the uh, the president's pardon power, I'm paraphrasing, now quoting, represents a final angry assertion of power by a president who is losing his ability to shape events, events with each passing day. A statement of relevance, even as Mr. Trump confronts the end of his dominance over the nation's capital. An angry exertion of power? Actually, the pardon power is anything but an angry exertion of power. It is a quiet exertion of power. The president didn't come out and give any declaration when he gave these pardons. It's not angry. How are you in the mind of the president to say that this is an angry exertion of power? If anything, the pardon power in general and here is the opposite of an angry exertion, right? Because it is a solemn and you can, of course, Peter Baker would dispute that. But let me choose another word. It's a quiet exertion of power in that it's done. It's a signature on the pardon and it's done. An angry exertion of power is when one is presented with resistance. So, again, this hyperbole infused in these so-called articles or so-called news analyses demonstrate the bias of the media and demonstrate the bias of Peter Baker of The New York Times. 
All right, Robert, let's continue this into the 7 o'clock hour. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave is on Christmas break right now. He is a law professor at the Bowen School of Law. We'll be right back after the news, weather, and traffic on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday morning. I will be on Dave's show hosting both, uh, of course, today, but also both Wednesday and Thursday. Dave will be back tomorrow, so be sure to tune in to 101.1 FM, The Answer, to hear him live tomorrow. And on Friday, we will have a best-of show because it's New Year's Day. Uh, we have on the line with us our good friend, Chris Corbett, attorney, professional engineer, uh, lives up in Conway, practices throughout the state. Uh, Chris, welcome back to the show. How are you this morning? Thanks for having me on, Rob. I'm doing great. Terrific. Well, Chris, we're going to finish up with this Peter Baker so-called article from the New York Times uh, very shortly. I frankly think we've heard enough from Peter Baker. Peter Baker, even through my criticism thereof. But there are a couple of other comments I want to make from the article, and then let's move on to other topics. Uh, So in this article, Peter Baker is talking about um, the pardons given by President Trump. And he says, Peter Baker, that is, that under Justice Department guidelines, pardons are normally not even considered until five years after an applicant completes a sentence and are granted in recognition of of the applicant's acceptance of responsibility for the crime and established good conduct. He admits, Baker does, that a president does not have to follow these guidelines, and Mr. Trump famously dismissive or ignorant of norms. Don't you love that, right? He's ignorant of the norms, (laughs) really. Um, Has largely dispensed with the Justice Department process for vetting clemency requests, treating them in many cases not as acts of forgiveness, but assertions of vindication. Again, psychobabble from Peter Baker as to the last clause. But an important point about pardons is raised by Peter Baker, I think unintentionally, no doubt, and something that I have discussed in, uh, it, uh, for a long time, as I mentioned earlier in the show, pardons is a topic that I have had some academic interest in for a long time. And that is, think about this, the Justice Department guidelines for pardons. When do you give out a pardon? Chris, you can comment on this as well in a moment. A pardon is when an executive decides that something went wrong with the prosecution of the individual. Not the only time. Sometimes I mentioned two categories at the beginning of Dave's show this morning. One is when you think something went wrong with the prosecution. And two is when you think the person has made enough amends and there are certain other criteria in my mind uh, and a certain sufficient time has passed that the person should be absolved for that wrongdoing after having paid his price. So there are two categories. 
Now, the Justice Department is the chief prosecutor for the United States. So they certainly can comment on Category 2. That is, oh, the person has made amends and done enough good, et cetera, et cetera. Can the prosecutor aptly comment, Chris, on prosecutorial misconduct, the first category for when you grant a pardon? That is, when the president thinks that his own prosecutorial team did something wrong and it's too late to say, don't do that, because, of course, the president isn't aware of all of the acts of a prosecutor. And even when he is, according to the left, he shouldn't get involved. That's a false claim. But when he does what the left wants and doesn't get involved with the prosecution and it takes its normal course and the president decides that something was done wrongfully, should he go to the prosecutor and say, Hello, um, I think you guys did something wrong, so I would like to um, give this person a pardon. What do you think? No! No! But Peter Baker, blissfully unaware, maybe to borrow a term, ignorant Peter Baker is of this Category 1 where pardons are given and should be given, he doesn't comment on that at all, does he? Not at all, Chris. So yeah. this so-called news reporter says the president didn't go to the prosecutor to ask the prosecutor as to whether or not the prosecutor engaged in prosecutorial misconduct or other wrongdoing. Do you think that's an apt context in which the president should get input from the very prosecutor that he's undoing? What are your thoughts yeah. as someone who has been a prosecutor yourself? <laughs> well, you know, to start with that analysis, prosecutor, prosecutors are uh, immune. They have immunity. Like, you cannot sue a prosecutor for actions that he takes. Um, they have immunity. Uh, where judges have immunity in handing down rulings. So for them to come out and say, uh, no, you, one of the criteria is to judge us and that uh, we had some um, uh, misconduct and that's why you're pardoning it. No, that, that, that one's completely false in my mind. And it's made up out of whole cloth. Um, let, me, let me elaborate, not- Chris, for a moment, because Chris raises a very important point. Chris's point about immunity for prosecutors and judges is that, look, one of the reasons that we don't speed on the highway is because – uh, or excessively. I think most people go a little bit above the minimum or the, the, the required posting. But why we hopefully don't speed excessively, uh, well, there's two reasons, much like two reasons for the pardon power, but there's two reasons. One is we fear getting a ticket. There's a check. Uh, the other reason is for safety. Well, if prosecutors don't fear any check on them because they can't, because they have this immunity, they're more likely to go out of lane, shall we say, to go out of bounds, to speed when they shouldn't speed, to extend the analogy. So we need another form of check. And maybe it's not a check on their behavior in the sense that they feel the wrongdoing, but at least it corrects that underlying wrongdoing. Uh, and, an underlying wrongdoing from a group of people who overwhelmingly do the right thing, but have very little check on their authority and therefore uh, can from time to time 
go outside the limits. Go on, Chris. That's that's very interesting that you brought that up. So yeah, um, uh, so we're talking about you know the presidential's pardon power. I, I think another uh, category, broad category, comes to my mind is um, if if he's in some sort of negotiation with a foreign power, and we caught somebody on our land, does he have the ability to pardon um, a foreign enemy? Um, yeah. So the presidential powers to pardon uh, they're not unlimited. And it seems to me like the article that you're you're talking about um, is is out there in a way to try to limit the potential or the possibility that the president may pardon somebody that allegedly conspired to help him get into office or conspired to uh, make money with him in some form or fashion. That's what they're throwing out these so-called. Um, allegations that oh he's he's going to pardon people that that helped him out and uh, so that's where I think people may be getting upset about these pardons that he's throwing out there but but um, from what we've seen from what I've seen uh, President Trump is taking his time in, in issuing pardons he's not throwing these things around just because he's mad or he's not throwing them around just to get back at people he's looked at certain things and said okay. Um, this was this was not right. Uh, this person has done those things. He's he's paid his cry. He's paid for his time. Um, so I, I I can't. I don't think they should beat him up um, over the pardons he's getting. Well, indeed. Let me let me sort of um, focus one issue and then get back to the article. Uh, the pardon power is essentially unfettered. That. So people say, well, is the president allowed to give a pardon in exchange for money? Well, yes and no. Meaning, if he takes money for a pardon, he's committed a crime. He's taken a bribe. He can be prosecuted for that crime. That doesn't mean that the pardon itself doesn't go through. The pardon power is... Oh, yeah. So the pardon power is essentially unfettered. I say essentially because, like, for example, can he pardon himself? That's an open question. I think the answer is no. Uh, but so that would describe one form of restriction on the pardon power. But, of course, that's never been addressed, so a court would have to answer that. But can he give a pardon subject to a bribe? Well, he can get punished for the bribe, but... It's my belief, and by the way, I'm not alone in this, that the pardon remains a pardon because that pardon power is essentially unfettered. I have a last. That's interesting. Uh, uh, right? You just made me think of one more thing, Rob. Can, he, can the president pardon a person prior to conviction or prior yes. to indictment? That, that's, yes. what's, that's what is interesting to me. Yes. It's know. a good question. And, of course, we see the example when President Nixon resigned. He was not charged with anything at that point, And President Ford pardoned him in advance. So oh, nice. We, That's right. And we know yep. that as an example. Now, mind you, maybe people would say that was not enforceable. But right. few, if anyone, is, uh, uh, is saying that. The pardon power can be exercised even prior to indictment and therefore, of course, prior to conviction. All right, y'all, let's continue this conversation in the next segment. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave Ellswick is on vacation right now. He is a law professor at the Bowen School of Law 
at UA Little Rock. His opinions are his and his alone and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of those at UA Little Rock. We are also joined with another one of our legal experts, Chris Corbett. We'll be right back after this commercial break. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave today. I'll be back on Wednesday and Thursday. Dave will be uh, on the radio tomorrow, Tuesday, here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. So please stay tuned all week. We have on the radio, of course, with us, Chris Corbett, attorney, professional engineer, uh, and likely candidate this coming Next election, what's that, 2022, of course, the primary uh, will be earlier than that. And in Arkansas, that's often what counts uh, because we are overwhelmingly Republican, thank goodness. And as such, uh, the person that wins the Republican primary, if there is a a challenger, uh, is the one that goes on to win the general because the Democrat in most locations, not all, not all. Uh, doesn't have a significant opportunity uh, to win based on that person's, that candidate's political belief system being contrary to the vast uh, representation of the constituency. So, Chris, we're going to talk about that in in, in a bit of a moment, uh, meaning your desire and interest in running for office. Uh, What I want to finish up, and I will indeed finish up this so-called article from Peter Baker, uh, because just and it's really a great coda to this whole discussion to show you how biased this piece is. So Peter Baker goes on to say, Mr. Trump makes little effort to hide the fact that his pardons go to people with connections, connections, even listing in his announcements who recommended them. Yada, yada, yada. Seven drug convicts receiving clemency this week were recommended by Alice Marie Johnson, a previous pardon recipient originally brought to Mr. Trump's attention by Kim Kardashian West. Think about this for a moment. Peter Baker claims that President Trump is giving pardons to people with connections when one of those connections was a person that the president had no knowledge of a convict in jail to whom the president gave a pardon. Now that she's out of jail and knows of other people who are in jail, arguably wrongfully, meaning either through prosecutorial misconduct or they got too long of a sentence. So the president says these other people who I don't know have some affiliation or at least are aware uh, um, are in the um, orbit of this former convict who I don't know other than having pardoned her and she passes on this relevant information and these are according to to Peter Baker people with connections to the president by that logic quite literally anybody that the department of justice would have vetted and presented to the president are people with connections to the president because of the of course the president appointed the attorney general and he's the head of the department of justice so if the head of the department of justice who the president has a connection with recommended these people obviously through the transitive property property of connections that peter baker seems to be operating under 
these people too would be ha- have connections to the president. This is just make believe, folks. <laughs> right? Literally. A yes, that- it is make believe. I'll tell you what's interesting. I'm gonna just throw this out there. I'm gonna make it up right here on the yep. air, Rob. Yep. Let's let's make it a pocket pardon. See, Hunter Hunter's in trouble. Hunter Biden's in trouble, yeah. and um, they may come after Trump's kids in the future. What if Hunter? I mean, uh, President Trump's go ahead and pardons Hunter, sticks it in a drawer, and then. The new president, Joe Biden, can pull it out and go, hey, look what I found here. Oh, we can't prosecute any of Trump's kids now because Joe's going to owe him one, right? Mm, yeah, I don't think Joe would feel bound to owe him any. I think, I think the president <laughs> should pardon all of his children. I, should, I think he should pardon everybody <clears throat> in his administration. Because, well, you know what? Why not, but, Rob? Right? Seriously, I, I don't think that's an outlandish idea. That 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 would they you've seen where folks are, have been prosecuted for political reasons when Trump got elected. This is not something new. Um, they they prosecuted Ted Stevens politically, and uh, this was a previous U.S. senator from Alaska that passed away in a plane crash. Um, it's happened, and Sidney Powell's all over that. So uh, yeah. P- President Trump has got some leeway on pardons, and um, I think he needs to preemptively give some that 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 this new Democratic um, president might come after the new or new, the new Justice Department. Right? They're going to replace all the U.S. attorneys normally. Sometimes, some of them. So normally, all of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I agree with you, Chris. It's. There's no reason not to, and there's every indication, given how the Democrats have operated over the last four years, that they will continue to go after Republicans. You saw what's happening when the president's lawyers are pursuing legal cases for him. They're saying, oh, don't hire this law firm, and these people need to be kicked out, and this and that and the other thing. For doing their jobs, Chris? Yeah. For doing their jobs? I'm representing someone up in New York, in the Southern District of New York, that's federal court. When you hear that phrasing, as you know, that's federal court. In the Southern District of New York, when I filed a motion to dismiss because the case is nonsense, and the judge said to me, actually the magistrate judge, because God forbid a district judge, that's the trial judge, actually does all of his or her work, the magistrate judge sent to the, excuse me, the district judge sent to the magistrate the motion to dismiss uh, for an initial decision. Now, magistrates have All right, very... Robert, let's continue yep. that thought uh, after the break. We have to hear what Rush Limbaugh has to say coming up. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett are some of our resident legal experts they are discussing right now. We will be back right now on the Dave Ellswick Show. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave. I'm here today, of course, as well as Wednesday and Thursday. Dave will be in on tomorrow. Did I get that right? I'm not sure. Uh, Here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. We have on the line, as we often do, our good friend Chris Corbett, attorney, professional engineer, uh, up in the Conway area, practices throughout the state. In fact, as you well know, Chris, uh, you are admitted uh, to practice both engineering and law in various states. Uh, and we have uh, worked together uh, in that capacity. I was telling you before the break about this case that I have up in the Southern District of New York, 
and I was sharing with you some of my thoughts on how the district judge delegated one of his core functions, that is deciding uh, an issue of uh, whether the case should be dismissed, uh, to a magistrate judge. Now, let me describe what a magistrate judge is, what they do, what they should do, and what uh, they uh, are not empowered to do. So magistrate judges are not judges under the Constitution in the sense that they're not appointed for life pursuant to constitutional provisions. They are hired by courts to handle certain matters, and they do it very well often. So they uh, primarily, perhaps, uh, handle discovery issues. That means all of the exchange of information that takes place between parties during litigation. And they will often handle motions other than discovery motions when the district judge sends the motion to a magistrate. It's my belief, however, that district judges shouldn't send motions to magistrates other than discovery issues without the consent of the parties. That's not what happens, but it shouldn't be the case. And then, of course, after the magistrate issues a decision on those other motions, the district judge still has to review that decision and the losing party has an opportunity to argue against that uh, decision. So I think magistrate judges are very important to the process. Uh, one of their key functions is to help streamline the process for the judges by taking on much of the very important burden of discovery. Uh, then they can also handle dispositive motions. I think they should only do so at the discretion of the parties. And finally, they handle trials quite often because they have offer an opportunity to have your case tried typically more quickly than would be the case in waiting for the district judge. Now that has to be done with the consent of the parties and it happens all the time. So my point is that if that happens all the time uh, and it's done well, and it no doubt often is, then allow the parties to make that decision. And what you often see is that motions other than discovery motions are sent to magistrate judges without the input of the parties because district judges become um, too lazy to handle those motions. They don't like the case. They're not interested in the case. Well, guess what, judges, district judges? Uh, do your job. You obviously campaigned, I don't mean that literally, uh, but figuratively campaigned for that job for some time. Now that you got it, maybe you should do it. Uh, that's not all district judges, mind you, but uh, this certainly is the case with uh, the case that I have up in the Southern District. And so this is all by way of background to tell you that this magistrate judge said to me, <clears throat> well, you know, you could uh, not pursue your motion to dismiss or you could narrow it if you wanted to. Why would I want to do that, Chris? Why would I want to do that? I, I well, represent the interests of my client. Yeah. And the interests of my client are to pursue this motion to dismiss, every word of which was proper and appropriate. Yeah. So thank you very much. But I have one client, and that's, in this case, the defendant. Uh, don't waste my time with your unsolicited offers for me not to do my job.
What are your thoughts on yeah, that? I, as as usual, Rob, you are right on point about federally appointed judges and the difference between a the federal judge that's appointed and approved by the Senate. Uh, the magistrates are hired for eight-year terms. They make about $200,000 a year, and they can be reappointed by a majority vote of the of the uh, the circuit court, the federal circuit court. They can be reappointed by, by a vote of the federal judges. And um, so what they do is they sometimes they punt those decisions. The federally uh, elected judge, the federally appointed judge, can punt those decisions to a hired magistrate. And right on point as usual, um, they can try those cases. Now, that's only done with consent of the parties. Um, now, uh, these uh, federally appointed or federally hired judges and magistrates are well qualified they're vetted there's huge background checks on them um, they're not just um, you know someone off the street that's been picked out of the uh, the legal community um, they're, they're well educated and um, so what what you've aptly pointed out is do your job and what that when you said that it reminded me of the uh, book of Judge Arnold, when he became a judge, and um, he got in there and started issuing these fantastic opinions in these cases that have been sitting for a while, because a judge can just sit on a case. He can just sit there and not rule on it, um, and he's federally appointed unless he does something wrong. You know, he's got to be impeached. But, um, yeah, these federal judges need to get in there and do their job and um, hopefully get a fair shake. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I remember it's maybe 10 years back now. Uh, I had a case here in Arkansas, in the Eastern District of Arkansas, uh, before uh, Billy Roy Wilson, that's the district judge. And by the way, folks, I'm not making fun of his name. That's his name. He's changed it to that. I think his given name was Wilson, excuse me, William, and he changed it to Billy Roy. So that's his choice. So uh, I had a case before uh, Billy Roy Wilson, and the attorney on the other side was uh, a woman by the name of Beth Deer. And seems fine. Okay, whatever. You know, uh, I didn't agree with all of her statements, meaning I thought some of the things that she said in court were not accurate. But in any event, well, then all of a sudden we get a notice like December 29th that she's uh, pulling out of the case. Another attorney came on the case. But the reason she's pulling out of the case is because she was going then to be taking her seat as a magistrate judge three days later, you know, January 1st, because that's when the appointment uh, comes uh, uh, due, so to speak, um, in that court working for Billy Roy Wilson, having been hired by... Billy Roy Wilson and the other judges on the court. And during that whole time prior, she never recused herself from the case in which she was appearing before Billy Roy Wilson. Billy Roy Wilson was well aware that she was soon to be taking the bench in that court and didn't do anything about it either. Well, that's just wrong. Wow. Improper behavior by Billy Roy Wilson and improper behavior by Beth Deer. Both of them said well, nothing throughout that process. But, you know, that's a kind of cronyism and corruption that goes on all across this country. And that's what undermines the legitimacy of our judicial system when we see awful behavior by that. We're, well, there, are right. plenty of good, there are plenty of good magistrate judges throughout this country. I uh, had interned for one up in New York a, a thousand years ago. He's no longer on the bench. He's retired. I have a local magistrate judge here in the Eastern District of 
Arkansas, who comes to teach in my class almost every year in my evidence class. Uh, and he does, that's Joe Volpe. He does an outstanding job teaching that class. And I hear very good things uh, about him, of course, on the bench. So this is no critique of the position, but it is a critique of certain individuals occupying it. We must remember that when people are given power, there is a greater opportunity for an abuse. You can't abuse power if you don't have it. But when you give people power, that's when you see their true colors. And uh, needless to say, I saw some of those true colors in the example I just described to you. By the way, I recently opined on Billy Roy Wilson having issued an opinion against uh, a very good attorney in town, Sanford, uh, Josh Sanford, in which uh, Billy Roy Wilson yet again went off the rails. You know, we have lifetime appointments for judges. And this is so that they can't be subject to influences of the population. But the problem is there's no mandatory retirement age. And when you see some of the behavior, like I'm describing from Billy Roy Wilson, one wonders if we should put into place a mandatory retirement age. They'll still get their pay. They just won't (laughs) be making decisions. Uh, And Billy Roy Wilson made these comments in this opinion, this wasn't just off-the-cuff comments, that, oh, well, uh, Josh Sanford, who was asking for either 250 or $300 an hour, which is a modest rate by you. Well, that's an excessive rate. Attorneys in Little Rock get that all the time. There's nothing excessive about that. Then Billy Roy Wilson went on to say, well, Josh Sanford himself shouldn't have built anything on this particular case because one of the attorneys that worked for Josh Sanford was handling the case. Uh, it's called the Josh Sanford Law Firm. If he wants to look over papers in, the, in any case that goes out that door, he's perfectly entitled to do, and to bill for it. By the way, it was like a billing for half an hour or something. Ooh, boy, that's really excessive, isn't it? I say sarcastically to those that have not perceived my tone. So this is the kind of sort of going off the rails that really undermines the legitimacy of the judicial system uh, in its entirety. And now let's come back to a topic, Chris, that I would like your thoughts on, and that relates to this, and that is your lawsuit regarding judges and courthouses, meaning there is a law on the books in Arkansas that says attorneys are entitled to carry guns both in courthouses, Category 1, and courtrooms, Category 2. And so far, the uh, Pulaski County has opposed that. Why? Because they don't like it. Why? Because there ain't no law supporting them. Now, the case hasn't gone forward yet because Judge Piazza, who has been assigned the case, is retiring, Is it, I think, in like a few days, right? And by Friday, right. doesn't he retire at the end of the year? So, so. it hasn't gone forward. We haven't pushed it because we said, well, you know, he's busy and retiring. We'll wait for the new judge to come on. <clears throat> but uh, let's see what happens. Come the new year, we're going to make sure that the new judge is well aware of this case, and we, we're going to put a test to this judge to see, remember, judges in Arkansas are elected, whether he wants to follow the law or he decides that in the the uh, alleged kingdom that is the courthouse, uh, he can 
violate, he or she, I don't know who the judge will be, can violate state statute. So uh, what do you think is going to happen with our case come the new year, Chris? Hey, let's answer this question after we come back from a break. We need to get to our traffic. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett are our resident legal experts. They are talking right now. They are filling in for Dave. Dave is on Christmas break right now, but Dave will be back tomorrow. We will uh, be right back after this traffic break on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this Monday morning. Dave will be back tomorrow here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. I'll be filling in on Wednesday and Thursday. Please stay tuned, folks, all week long. We're talking with Chris Corbett, of course, attorney, professional engineer up in Conway, practices throughout the state and indeed throughout the country. Chris, we uh, led off the break with... The introduction to the discussion about your case, I'm your attorney on this case, seeking to open up the courts pursuant to the law. State yeah. law says, yeah. so, right, go ahead. You, t- you tell the people. Yeah, so, so, here's, so here's what we're talking about. And there's a, there's a recent article that, that really drives this home. So, so attorneys are out in the public. They're out there kicking and scratching, trying to make a living. They're representing um, alleged criminals. They're, they're handling civil cases. And they go to and from their car from a parking lot to the courthouse. The problem is with attorneys not being able to carry weapons or knives or anything like that is that they got to leave the stuff in the car. So when they go into a courthouse, they've got to disarm themselves, which is their workplace. It's where they work. And it's where they're likely going to be attacked is when they're moving from the courthouse back to their vehicle. Um, and if you got a, if you're disarming attorneys, so they can go into a courthouse, there's a problem. So I looked into it, got several phone calls from attorneys, and when I saw, when I read the statute, it said officers of the court are allowed to carry weapons. Now let me tell you something that's interesting about that. Prosecutors can carry weapons. They are not a bailiff, they're not a law enforcement officer, but a prosecutor's allowed to carry a weapon into the courthouse. Do they? We don't know. They're concealed. And that's the whole point. These are not open. It's not open carry. It's going to be concealed. And now here's a point that really drives this home. There was an incident in Pine Bluff just recently. Um, there was they got a call. Uh, a lady uh, has, has hurt her knee and her knee has been injured. Um, it was not reported as a domestic violence situation. Um, so an, an ambulance shows up. Two ambulance uh, uh, workers, employees that work for a private ambulance company. Most ambulance companies are private. They go out there. They attend to this lady that's got this injured knee. They get her into the back of the ambulance, and they realize it's a gunshot. Well, the disgruntled boyfriend is there. He's mad that this lady's receiving care. The disgruntled boyfriend, this happened in Pine Bluff, pulls out a gun, shoots each of the ambulance workers, the EMTs, three times each. One of the ambulance workers has a concealed carry weapon. He's able to pull it, successfully defends himself, and kills this disgruntled boyfriend that has shot him and his partner three times Mm. each. And now there's a debate of whether or not EMTs are going to be allowed to carry weapons onto a private, you know, a private job. Uh, it's it's it, yeah, they need to have that power and they need to have it now. Um, and attorneys need to have the right to carry a weapon into the courtroom if they so 
choose to do so. And it's available under the statute. And all we've done in this lawsuit is ask for a ruling on it. And um, we'll see what happens. It says it in the statute. Officers of the court are allowed to carry firearms. Um, we'll find out. Now, is they're going to be in the court house or is it going to be out in the courtroom? We'll see. It, you're exactly right to point out that distinction uh, because there is a distinction there. But the statute, to be clear, permits both. Right. It should be both. And yep. the 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 county, quite deceptively, brought up some case law that's wrong on two grounds. First of all, they brought up case law only dealing in this context with courtrooms. Uh, there's a different set of rules that apply to courtrooms than do to courthouses, and they drew no distinction uh, uh, in that regard. Uh, to be clear, uh, let me rephrase that because I think that might be, uh, to be fair, uh, not completely uh, on the news. That is, they they couched their arguments in those that relate to courtrooms, uh, even in an attempt to swallow up the analysis that deals with courthouses. And so that's disingenuous. But uh, moreover, uh, what they're talking about is this notion that we have called separation of powers, in which each branch of government, the legislature, the executive, the governor, that is, right, and the judiciary, the courts, that is, uh, are entitled to make certain rules about their own sphere. And that's limited. And so right. if judges make certain rules about their sphere, uh, that ability to make a rule is greater in the courtroom than in the courthouse. Because they don't run the courthouse <laughs> at all. All what right, Robert. Let's yep. continue this conversation into the 6 p.m. hour. Financial Issues Live is up next from 8 to 11 a.m. So we will continue this in the evening hours. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett are our resident legal experts. They are filling in for Dave as Dave is on a much-needed Christmas break right now. We will be back t- tonight at 6 p.m. on The Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. Robert Steinbuck in the 6 o'clock hour here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. I'm filling in for Dave today and Wednesday and Thursday. Dave will be back on the radio tomorrow on 101.1 FM, The Answer. So please stay tuned all week to hear uh, commentary and news. We have on the line with us Chris Corbett from Conway. He's an attorney. He's a professional engineer, practices throughout the state and indeed throughout the country. And we were talking this morning, if you listened in, but we will uh, give you a new intro about Chris's lawsuit in which I'm representing him 
uh, regarding the rights of attorneys pursuant to state law to carry firearms in the courthouse and in courtrooms. And we were discussing how courts have a greater authority inside the courtroom than they do in the courthouse because they don't have anything to do with running the courthouse. That's usually run by the county sheriff. They hire the guards. They hire the janitorial services, et cetera, et cetera. That's all done uh, outside the purview of judges. Judges have some control inside the courtroom. Uh, and when we file, when they refuse to let Chris in with a firearm and we filed our lawsuit, uh, the county said, well, uh, judges are allowed to do lots of things in their courtroom, uh, it, glossing over the distinction largely between courtrooms and courthouses. And even within the courtroom, they're not allowed to make up their own laws. Right. Judges are oh, well, murder is legal in my courtroom. No, 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 no. It don't work that way. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you're allowed to steal anybody's money. No, 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 no. No good as well. No, sorry. Can't do that as well. Um, I'm the judge. You're allowed to pay me to be. No, 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 no. That don't work. So before we jump too quickly on the bandwagon of so-called separation of powers, for those that know that somewhat obscure term and say that, well, judges control the courtroom. Well, no, they don't. They control certain aspects of the courtroom. And the question becomes whether they can supersede your elected officials who enacted state law that says attorneys can carry guns in the courthouse and the courtroom. And what's critical here, folks, and what's so important to remember is state judges are elected. What is it, Chris, a six-year term? That's Uh, right. So, Right. So they're elected. So if they are anti-Second Amendment and or anti-gun rights, if they decide to not observe the law as it relates to your attorney's gun rights in the courthouse, don't you want your attorney carrying if you have to go to court when the guards inside the courthouse, they're not protecting you. They protect the judge. Who's protecting you right now? Nobody. But if your attorney's armed, well, maybe he'll protect you. That's his job, after all, to represent you. Maybe he'll also protect you. So let's see if these judges decide to enforce the law or if they're a bunch of leftists. You know, we have a bunch of leftist judges on the courts. Not entirely, but there are a bunch of them. Here in Pulaski County, they like to elect leftist judges. So the question is, you're going to get a leftist judge who obeys the law? Or makes up his own law or her own law. We'll see. We're going to see. So what do you think is going to happen? What's the next step? What are we going to do next, Chris? Oh, we're going to hit him with some discovery, uh, Rob. We're going to, we're going to push the issue. Um, and the, the next thing will happen um, will be a motion for summary judgment. It's going to go down on the law. The facts mm-hmm. are clear. And um, we'll have a hearing on it. And then... Um, Win or lose, both both sides are going to appeal. There's no doubt about it that this thing will be appealed. And and you, um, and you raise an important point because this thing is going to the Supreme Court of Arkansas. And we've got some conservatives. We've got some bureau hacks. And I think we have uh, one or two, perhaps, I can't remember now. We certainly did, um, uh, leftists. But I don't remember how that's all shaken out more recently. Uh, so let's see if the conservatives – Stand up for conservative principles. Because, by the way, 
that rule is going to apply to their courthouse as well. That is, That's you're right. entitled to carry a gun into the Supreme Court courthouse as well. So let's see if they uh, stand by their conservative principles. Uh, you think that it's guns for others, but not for for your courthouses? Is that what you want to say? <laughs> Let's see what those conservatives have to say. Let's see what the bureau hacks on the Supreme Court. We've seen bureau hacks already operate on the Supreme Court here in Arkansas. We're going to be campaigning against them come the next election. And, of course, the liberals. Let me tell you, of the three, the only ones who are going to be standing by their convictions, not the law, mind you, are the liberals. Um, if they... To be clear, if they go against this law. But I'm cautiously optimistic that at least the conservatives, and we'll see about the bureaucrats, will stand up for the law. If they don't, let me tell you, this is a litmus test, Chris. If a judge votes against the law that says you get to carry a gun in, in the courthouse and courtroom, if a judge issues an opinion contrary to that clear law, we... You and I, Dave, and others will campaign actively against those judges. So That's good right. luck in your next reelection. Yeah. Either you're a conservative or you ain't. Well, and, and you know, you, you bring up a great point, Rob, and that's what's um, uh, really almost forced me to explore running for an election um, out, of, out of Conway. And I haven't fully made my decision yet and if I'm going to run for the legislature, but um, uh, th- this is what has caused me to think about it. I've been out here litigating these laws, and they drive me insane sometimes. I'm like, who wrote this? But in this one, in in the in our a guns in the courthouse lawsuit, it's pretty clear. It's written right there in black and right. There's no, uh, the arguments that the other side has put forward are, are disingenuous um, and don't make any sense, basically. Um, and if you don't like the law, then write another one, right? That's what this country is all about. Uh, so we're going to find out. That's what we're going to, we're going to find out, Rob, and it's going to be a blast. Wow. Chris, you raised such an important issue, and that is you running for office come this next term. That's 2022. But remember, of course, the important race generally in Arkansas, because most of Arkansas is conservative, is in the primary, which will right. will be even sooner. Uh, I guess that'll be some point next year, right? The primary? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the primaries will be in February because we moved up our primaries. So basically, for the next three months, I'm on a uh, putting on my engineering hat. I'm going to gather the facts. I'm going to gather the givens to solve this equation and and determine if I'm going to run for either the House or for the Senate um, here out of Conway and and serve the the people of Conway. Um, it's it's going to be interesting what I find out, and um, uh, we'll go from there. You know, we've got some good folks. Uh, in the legislature right now, we got Jason Rapert uh, in the Senate, and then we have Spencer Hawks in the House right now. Um, there's some interesting dynamics that will come out of that. Uh, Jason Rapert is going to leave the Senate seat open, um, and he's going to run for – he stated that he's going to run for lieutenant governor. And um, that race is going to be crowded. The governor's race is going to be crowded. So um, back to the local races here out of Conway, uh, Spencer Hawks is going to either uh, rerun for the House and, and keep his seat in the House, or he may run for Senate. We don't know. Uh, so it's going to be interesting. We'll gather the facts and then and then throw in another uh, uh, variable here to solve this equation is they're going to redistrict. 2020, we had a census. So they're going to redraw the lines. Um, 
the House that Spencer Hawks currently, his constituents that he currently represents, will change. The Senate uh, district is going to change. And um, so I'm exploring all that and going to make some decisions here in the next two to three months. That's fantastic, Chris. Uh, I, um, of course, as you are, very impressed with uh, both the uh, Senator Jason Rapert up there, who's going to run for Lieutenant Governor, and Spencer Hawks. I recently spoke with Spencer. He's a very impressive individual, very smart, and uh, I don't want to get out ahead of him, uh, but I do get the impression, at least, and maybe uh, he's announced, so I don't know one way or the other, but I at least get the impression that he's going to run for that a Senate seat that Jason is leaving open. And that's one of the, as you just mentioned, uh, seats that you are considering, be it the Senate or the House. But I'll say this uh, openly on the air. Uh, there's something to be said uh, about having uh, someone like Spencer uh, move up to that Senate seat and almost run on a ticket with you running for the House uh, and you two can effectively campaign together in which uh, he can run for the Senate and you can run for the House. That's not to say that you should foreclose thinking about running for the Senate. It's a viable option, uh, particularly for someone like you who is a lawyer. And there are only literally a handful of lawyers in the House and Senate combined. We need some more. We don't need them all to be lawyers. Uh, it's too much of a good thing, so to speak. But we need some more lawyers in both the House and the Senate. Uh, but I do think that uh, Spencer, re regardless of what position he runs for, and like I say, my impression is he's going to run for that Senate position. Uh, he is an, a very able individual, very smart individual, and represents uh, uh, well conservative interests. And that's, of course, paramount to me. Of course, all of those things uh, can and are said by me about you that you're very capable, very intelligent, uh, and have true core conservative values, which is critical for any elected representative. Uh, so we'll see how all that plays out. But uh, And I want to see you run for either the Senate or the House. Uh, one option is to run on almost a ticket uh, with Spencer uh, and you taking over essentially his seat, albeit redistricted, and he uh, taking Jason's seat. So yeah, you, you, Go ahead. yeah, you bring up an interesting point, um, depending on what, you know, Spencer, what kind of decision he makes, because um, I believe he's he served in some of the uh, – some of the leadership positions in the house. Um, he's on the house judiciary committee. Um, he's on some other, the, the local affairs committees, um, the legislative joint auditing committee. So that's interesting. So yeah, that's just one of the variables that I got to try to figure out. And um, when, when you, when you get all the variables uh, being a math person uh, the equations, even just easy to small, you know, easy to solve. Um, and I, once I get all these variables, I'm going to make a decision and um, uh, see what happens. All right, let's continue this conversation into the next segment. We have to take a break. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett are your resident legal experts on the Dave Ellswick Show. They are filling in for Dave as Dave is on a much-needed Christmas break right now. We will be back after this short break in the 6 p.m. hour on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave. It is Monday evening. We are in the 6 o'clock hour of 
the Dave Ellswick show. And we, I will be back on, on Wednesday and Thursday. Dave will rejoin you tomorrow here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. We have on the line with us, as we invariably do, Chris Corbett, attorney, professional engineer uh, from the Conway area, uh, represents people throughout the state, throughout the country, in fact. Chris, I want to shift topics slightly and talk about another travesty that is going on in this state, and that is the Municipal League. So for those of you that don't know what the Municipal League is, this is a lobbying organization. It's a fancy name. Oh, Municipal League, that sounds good. That sounds like the people that hand out candy or something. Nope. The Municipal League represent a bunch of local bureaucrats, and the funding for the Municipal League comes from your tax dollars. In other words, these bureaucrats at the local level take money from your tax dollars given to the locality, and they pay this quasi-private organization millions of dollars. And then, if that's not bad enough, this lobbying organization known as the Municipal League goes to the state legislature and lobbies for laws that impede your ability to review the actions of your localities. They lobby against the Freedom of Information Act, amongst other things, so that you have less oversight if the goals of the Municipal League were fulfilled uh, than you do now. So let's retrace this for a moment. They take your taxpayer dollars, they hire a bunch of unelected, unappointed, quasi-private bureaucrats uh, to go lobby, because that's what they are, a bunch of lobbyists, against your interests. And here, in the Dem Gaz, you're going to love this. For uh, the Municipal League's executives pay draws scrutiny, is the headline. Uh, Arkansas Municipal League Executive Director Don Zimmerman, who describes himself as, quote, a working retiree. Get this, a working retiree. Wait for it, folks. Wait for it. (laughs) Has received annual pay exceeding $300,000. I'll say it again. $300,000. For 10 of the past 11 years, that pay has ranged between 268000 to $467,000. Folks, that's not in a lifetime. That's in a year. This guy gets taxpayer dollars funneled to him, and he made $467,000 in 2012. How he was that? killing it. He was killing Kill it, it, Rob. Right? Now he, now he, I mean, uh, that that scrutiny ahead. was brought brought on by uh, a Bill Sample, a representative. Uh, I don't know if he's senator or representative out of Hot Springs. Um, but the late the late Don Zimmerman, Zimmerman, he he passed away. I think he passed away in June of 2018. Um, but that that pay that pay schedule still exists. Uh, his assistant Mark Hayes took over and get this, Rob. Get this. So you sure about that? His, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Mr. Okay. Zimmerson passed away. Uh, no, no, I mean, the, is that the, the guy who took over? What's his name? Yeah, Mark Hayes. Yeah, Mark Hayes. Oh, okay. I, I misunderstood it. what you said. Yes. Okay, very good. Yeah. Go on. Mark Hayes, is, Mark Hayes took over um, after uh, uh, Mr. Zimmerson had passed away. But here's why his salary was so high. Yeah, tell us. 
of the director's salary is 0.85% of a reserve fund. The reserve fund is money set up that sit there to pay out like an insurance. It's like an almost like an insurance policy. So he has an incentive not to pay out. He has incentive to do what insurance companies delay, deny, and then defend. And what are, what are they delaying? Who are they denying? Who are they defending? They're defending cities that are violating the rights of its citizens. It's I, it's I, I come up out of my seat, Rob. No one knows what's going on. Because if they do, they're going to be upset. So they take my taxpayer money. I, I pay it to the city. The city pays the Municipal League a fee. I don't know how much. But I do know if the city joins the municipal league, then they have to pay $3,000 to have the municipal league defend them in a lawsuit. So that's what it costs, like a deductible. Oh, hey, uh, we got sued down here in uh, DeWitt, and um, we want the municipal league to defend us. Here's three grand, plus the annual payments I make you. Uh, oh, and by the way, DeWitt's off the hook because the municipal league is going to pay whatever settlement or whatever that they get hit with out of this reserve fund. The reserve fund back in, I think, 2015 is sitting at, get this, $67 million. They have $67 million in some bank sitting there of taxpayer money with with no oversight. Who's who's looking at how they spend this? Uh, not the legislators, because uh, you know, Mr. The late Mr. Mr. Zimmerman's, Zimmerman's salary was half a million dollars a year. Um, they, they've got a at one point, uh, yeah, unbelievable yeah, how much got, it was. Yeah, and but but it was tied to this uh, this reserve fund that is an incentive for the guy to make more money, the director to make more money. Um, and um, they have a they have a how much a is a new guy lawyers. Do we know that? About two hundred and eighty thousand. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Now, just to be clear, is, that article I was reading from is is, is an old article, but I want I, right. I bring it up to raise this issue that it, what the municipal league is doing to our state government. They are right. taking local taxpayer money given to them by local bureau hacks that want to have essentially quasi-private representation for themselves at the expense of their constituents to go lobby the state legislature against the interests of the electorate. Yeah. Now, you bring up a very good point, uh, Rob. Do they take on a lobbying role for bills? And they do. Of course um, they do. I, I think that article talked about how something they got out of hand and and to give Don Zimmerman some credit he ran this he he's worked for the municipal league for 52 years he led the municipal league since 1974 he's turned this thing into a powerhouse defense team for cities um and and the cities only have they don't have sovereign immunity like the state right for intentional tort stuff like that um so so they've created this this entity a nonprofit if you will um that is essentially a public entity uh, that's subject to FOIA, but they fight it. They're out there. All right, Chris, let's continue this conversation into the next segment. We have to take a break. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett are filling in for the Dave Ellswick Show. We will be right back on The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave. 
We here are here in the six o'clock hour. We have Chris Corbett on the line with us. Chris, just before the break, we were talking about the undermining of public of the public uh, by the municipal league, by this quasi-private institution that takes taxpayer dollars given to them by local bureau hacks to. R- lobby against the interests of Arkansans. Uh, Continue your thoughts from before the break. Yeah, so what what I was talking about is how um, what we had seen in in FOIA responses to cities, when when you and I have FOIA the city, we saw this pattern of this canned response. The canned response was, uh, one, Oh, your your request is not specific enough. Can you please clarify what you mean by any and all records? Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Any and all means any and all records. How? So that was the first response we started getting. Uh, then their second response was, "Oh, please please clarify what you mean by any and all records." Number two, um, yeah, those records are currently in pro- or being a work in progress, or they're they're being worked on, so we can't turn them over. And then third, um, we're going to need some more time. This is going to take some time. Can we have a uh, small, more amount than three days to respond to your FOIA request? And what had happened was the Arkansas Municipal League was training attorneys in how to respond to FOIA requests in an effort to win a lawsuit if the citizen that was trying to get the documents filed suit because then they bring this response up and say, look, Your Honor, we're not denying this FOIA response. We just ask for clarification. We just simply ask for a little more time because we're going to have to redact stuff. And some of the records he requested were currently in use, which you well know, Rob, um, those are some excuses why a city may not turn them over. Um, And we started seeing these responses. Can can I add, Chris? Yes, please. Those that are represented by the Municipal League, when you've made FOIA requests, they they all come back seemingly with the exact same objection. Oh, we can't can't give it to you right now. It's in use. Oh, we don't understand what you're asking for. Nobody seems to understand what you're asking for when they're represented (laughs) by the Municipal League. Maybe they need a little clarification. Maybe they need a little education. Or... Just possibly, Chris, or the Municipal League is telling all of the people, these bureau hacks at the local level that they represent against the interests of Arkansans, telling them, delay, deny, delay. <laughs> That's what, yeah. what I think is going on here, Chris. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah, let me, uh, let, me, let, me in, let me empower all the listeners out here. We're going to drop some pearls on them right now, Rob. If you have been charged in a crime, a speeding ticket, anything, an uh, accident, um, uh, you know, a felony. You need to ask your defense attorney, have you FOIA'd, have you sent a FOIA request to the city? Let me tell you, Rob, how much more information I get via a FOIA request than I do via a discovery request inside the judicial branch in court. The FOIA request always, in my experience, produces more information that I can use to defend my client than a discovery request does in court because I don't know what's out there. I'm asking the prosecution, hey, will you turn over all the documents that you're going to present in court? Well, if they're not going to present it, 
They don't turn it over to me. We're getting down to exculpatory evidence that the government has that I need to defend the client. So here's a nutshell. In a nutshell, um, uh, Mr. Defense Attorney, have you FOIA'd the city that wrote that that wrote me the speeding ticket? That's a simple question. That's all you have to do. My standard defense of anybody now includes a two-minute FOIA request to the city for any and all emails, texts, and video from the incident. It's that simple. Right. No, it's very confusing, Chris. That's a very confusing request, you know, because you're using things like English (laughs) and sentences and conjunction and verbs. You know, you put all those all together, like in a paragraph, that's way too confusing for a bunch of bureaucrats who are trying to avoid transparency and are using your taxpayer dollars to do it. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Oh, and Rob, it gets even better than that, right? They go, oh, okay, Um, you want any and all records? Um, We need clarification on that from this incident. Do you mean any and all records from the last two days or any and all records from the beginning of time? Uh, Well, okay, let me clarify. Um, It's about regarding this incident where you wrote my client a ticket or you charged him with a crime. I need any and all records regarding that incident. It's okay. Oh, it's out! Oh, it's outrageous! And they're getting this training from the municipal league. That's what's going on. So it's, they're taking your money, Rob. They're taking your taxpayer money, and they're hurting you with it. They're taking your taxpayer money and not making transparent government. They're clouding the government. They're throwing a fog out there, and they're making you work for it. Um, it's outrageous. And we got to shine the light on it, right? We got to shine the light on them. See if any rats run out. Well, indeed, the purpose of the Freedom of Information Act, the FOIA, is to shine light on government action so that the cockroaches start to scurry. And I'm stomping. (laughs) I'm stomping right now, baby. (laughs) There's a cockroach. There's a cockroach. I'm stomping left and right. Let me tell you, because that's what comes out when you turn the lights on. The cockroaches. Right. Yep, and we and they're getting paid handsomely, Rob. They're sitting exactly. in their palaces, uh, eating prime rib and baked potato with butter and sour cream with some chives on it. <laughs> they're getting paid handsomely to hurt you. We're getting out the bug spray, and we're going to clean out the the infestation of uh, corruption. That's what we're going to do. It's really, it's really unfortunate, Chris. Uh, that we have this institution within the state of Arkansas that so actively campaigns against the interests of Arkansans. I met with a very good attorney uh, from the Municipal League uh, many years ago at this point, Um, and I said to them, listen, I think there are areas in which we can work together, notwithstanding my criticism, which has only grown, by the way. It wasn't this strong at the time because I didn't quite know all of the behaviors of the municipal league. But I think there are things we can work on. And he, I think individually, was receptive to that notion, uh, but came back to tell me that, that it wasn't going to work out. And it wasn't going to work out because the municipal league doesn't, want to pursue the best interests as a general matter of Arkansans. Uh, That's my belief. Now, they had one bill that I supported. 
They had a bill regarding confidential informants uh, coming under the purview of the Freedom of Information Act, and I agreed that people shouldn't be able to get the identity of confidential informants uh, under the Freedom of Information Act, particularly when they are undercover, essentially, right? Uh, and then when they're not under, uh, I forgot how the bill ultimately played out, but some level of anonymity, perhaps. I don't remember how that played out. But the point was, I thought that was a fair idea. And I said to them at the time, I, I said, well, I'll back you on that. But I think there are several other things related uh, to these issues that, you should be behind, meaning if this is your position here, then you should also back these other things. But the problem with backing the other things is that they also led to greater transparency, not less transparency. And that's when eventually the attorney for the municipal league came back to me and said, well, uh, I'm told we can't support those things. And the reason is they're not interested in bettering the lives of our Kansans. They're not interested in creating a better government, both local and beyond. They're interested in one thing and one thing only, which is diminishing the oversight of and increasing the power of local bureaucrats. And I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that. So uh, I do not look favorably upon their actions, albeit I remain open, as I was in the past, uh, to supporting uh, ideas that are good ideas. But it strikes me that when it comes from the Municipal League, those are few and far between. Your thoughts? You're, you're right, uh, Rob. They're, they're, under, they're operating under a little bit of disguise, and we need to rip that mask off and look at their actions, not their words, because their policies and goals state that the Arkansas Municipal League is a vehicle which, through cities and towns, uh, make known their common aims and purposes. You know what some of those common aims and purposes are? Rental inspections, um, uh, beating down the rural community to subjugate them to, to uh, building codes, and um, your lawn being more than eight inches tall. Uh, they, these are these common goals of government is to grow the cities. So they've got 500 cities paying them an insurance premium to defend some of their actions. And some of these cities' actions are outside the bounds of the Constitution. Um, I just read an ordinance yesterday, Rob, that said that if a city, okay, the city of Conway issues you a notice of violation, just a notice, like here's a notice, your, your lawn may be uh, longer than eight inches tall. Guess what? You can't sell your property. Come on, man. You can't, I can't. So you basically prohibited me from transferring my own real property because the city issued me a notice of violation. Now, Rob, you know me. Um, I'm trying to be nice. I make a phone call. I send an email. What do they do? Nothing. Send the email? Nothing. Hey, this ordinance is not constitutional. You can't prevent somebody from selling their property simply because of a notice of violation exists, and they they file it in the real the real estate records. I mean, it's not, so guess what? I'm going to have to file suit to get them to turn their head and go, oh, well, maybe that is unconstitutional. Maybe we need to look at that policy. Uh, so that's what we're dealing with, Rob. Um, and, and the Municipal League defends these kind of actions. So uh, I think I could make, make a living running around um, the state of Arkansas 
pulling up the municipal codes and just picking cherry-picking the unconstitutional ones. That's going to be a battle. They're not going to want to change it just simply because I made a phone call or because I sent an email. No, you got to file suit. They want a decision. They want to defend what they're doing. So we're going to we're going to put it to the test and see if some of these elected judges will do the right thing and rule some of these municipal ordinances unconstitutional. That's how we do it, Rob. Amen, brother. Well, uh, I look forward to uh, seeing a turnaround when it comes to the behavior of the municipal league, because for too long, uh, people have been either ignorant of or turning a blind eye to the behaviors of the municipal league, undermining the will of the people and doing so on the dime, on the dime of the Arkansas taxpayer. That's right. It's really, and you have there a guy who now many years ago made almost half a million dollars on the backs of Arkansans. How many Arkansans do you think? What percentage of the population of Arkansas makes anywhere near half a million dollars? Rob, over 10. 0.0001%? Yeah. Over 10 years, the man pulled home like $4 million. I mean, he was unbelievable, killing it killing it there's no oversight and they're using public money to do it that's right so you know here's a thing that the state legislature could do oh you guys are sending money out to this quasi private organization that's undermining the transparency of government that acts against the interests of Arkansans. Uh, well, we, the state government, when we disperse monies to cities and counties, by the way, this whole funneling money up back down, it's, it's just a system of uh, cronyism and corruption, but putting that aside for the moment, uh, when we're dispersing money back to your state, uh, excuse me, to your local government, if you got enough money to be giving it away to the municipal league, uh, we're going to start cutting the money we're giving you. How about them apples? You like apples? <laughs> there you go. How about them apples? There you go, Rob. We, we got to shine the light on them. We got to shine the light on them. All right, y'all, let's continue this conversation into the final break of the Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett are filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave is on a much-needed Christmas break right now. He will be back tomorrow, and we will be back after this commercial break on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday evening. I'll be back on on Wednesday and Thursday, and you'll have the joy of listening to Dave tomorrow. So tune in all week to 101.1 FM, The Answer. Chris, we're finishing up the 6 o'clock hour, and you have discovered some interesting things on the Municipal League's own website. Tell us what it says there. Number two. Number two. Oh, number one or number two? No, no, start with number one. Number one, to act as the official representative of Arkansas cities and towns before the state and federal government. Hmm. Now, the key there, Chris, the key there, as you recognize, is they have now admitted that they are performing a public function. And as a public someone who performs a public function, they are subject to the Freedom of Information Act. And we are announcing here on the Dave Ellswick show that you and I intend to make Freedom of Information Act requests of the Municipal League, and if they decline to turn over the records that they are required by state law to turn over, you, Chris 
Corbett, attorney at law, and I, Rob Steinbuck, attorney at law, will sue the Municipal League in Arkansas State Court. Isn't that right? Let's do it. Let's see what they turn over. I want to know everything. I want to see everything. Right? That's right. Let me tell you this, Rob. Um, when I sued the city of Hot Springs over their over their uh, their their false alarm ordinance, guess who paid out? The municipal league mm-hmm. paid out. When I sued the Little Rock Wastewater, known as now the Little Rock Wastewater Reclamation Center, the check came from the municipal league. Uh, they're 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 taking our money, Rob, and they're defending actions that are not constitutional unconstitutional Mm -hmm. they're defending unconstitutional actions of cities and towns that's what they're doing well what's also noteworthy is when the check comes from the municipal league rather than the locality subject to lawsuit it further demonstrates how they are now enmeshed in local government action uh without a doubt confirming what we have already known and discussed herein they are operating as a public entity subject to the Freedom of Information Act. We, as taxpayers, will get the oversight that we deserve. We will get the oversight that is guaranteed by state law. And we will get the oversight that will show us the inner workings of this organization that has been operating in the darkness for so many years. Yep. Number two, Rob to provide a clearinghouse for information and answers. I don't know about you, but have you gotten any answers from the Municipal League? Let's ask some questions. I've gotten the opposite of answers. I've gotten the opposite of answers. I've gotten deny, delay, deny. That's what I've gotten out of them. <laughs> they run the triple D on us. Delay, delay, delay. Oh, deny. Sorry, we're not subject to that request. And then when you file suit against them, they're going to defend. D, D, there you go. D. Number three, to offer a forum for discussion and the sharing of mutual concerns. That sounds like that. That sounds like uh, uh, conferences at nice plush hotel rooms uh, and conference rooms. What does that sound like? Funded funded by taxpayer dollars for a bunch yeah. of bureau hacks at the local level. I got it. Let, let's see how much money they spend on each one of their mission statements. Yeah, that's a pretty simple request. Yep. I think Chris, we're going to put that in today, aren't we? I am 100%. There you go. Chris Corbett is now uh, um, uh, announcing on the air, well, we both are, to be clear. Yep. We're going to be sending a FOIA request to the Municipal League today. Yeah. Yeah. We're not saying we're doing anything wrong. We're not saying they're no. We just want to see where we're no. – we, we want to shine the light. Uh, please provide all records. Uh, we'll give them in advance so they can get working on it now. Oh, yeah, they're going to be working hard. Uh, please provide all records that describe, show, et cetera, funding for each of your three mission statements. That's all. That's all I want to know. How much you spending of my money. Yes, I'm intentionally doing the accent. Of my yeah. money on your three mission statements. <laughs> That's what I want to know. Am I asking for too much? I don't think so. What do you think, Chris? Yeah. How about a percentage of the money in the reserve fund be spent on this, huh? Where's the yeah. percentage of the money that's paid out in salaries? How about a percentage of it? How is this? This fund is never going to be. It's going to just grow and grow and grow because they don't like to pay out. They don't like to settle exactly. these lawsuits. They defend. Deny, defend. What's the last one? Deny something else. What yeah, it's delay, D? delay, 
A delay. delay. I forgot the delay. Uh, yep. yep. Delay, uh, oh. deny, defend, and by the there way, that's what ain't a date. And then pay out. And then pay out because you lose. Because you lose. That's why. That one's not part of the D. No, it's not. It's really remarkable. Chris, oh. you and I, you know, we only have a few minutes left in in the show. And I just want to sum up by saying you and I have worked uh, for many years now uh, to clean up corruption. Corruption is inherent in government. It's inherent in various organizations, but government more so due to its structure uh, doesn't mean, and, and we know it for a fact, that it's not every uh, person in government. I work in government. Right? right? I work for yeah. the state uh, education system. Um, but we need to be ever vigilant on ensuring that government is not corrupt. And too often uh, there are these uh, examples of wrongdoing. And the only way that we are able to ensure <clears throat> that this wrongdoing is not pervasive is by keeping an eye, is by providing a check on government behavior. And that's what the Freedom of Information Act does. Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much, Chris. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett are our resident legal experts. They were filling in for Dave today. Dave Ellswick will be back tomorrow with the Bible Guys on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. Once again.